You know, Ricky, I had another uh, Dish Network guy out to the house today, and they all know you. It's like the, like the second, but they called you, uh, what they call him, Mac? Gibby. They called him Gibby. Yeah, I know Gibby. But you know, you, you're letting your light shine because everybody that comes out there speaks very highly of you. I know you've, you're, uh, you've got quite a witness going over there with your employees. God bless you for that. Okay. Because always check. What kind of guy is that guy? Oh, he's, he's a great guy. He's a great guy. Praise the Lord. We're in Matthew chapter 14. Anybody uh, need a Bible tonight? Raise your hand. You know, tonight we're going to talk about the three people in history who walked on water. There were three people in history who walked on water. Two we're going to read about tonight, Jesus and Peter. Of course, there's a third. You may not have heard of this. Alyssa, uh, show them who the third guy is. Jose also walked on water. You probably didn't know about Jose. Yeah, Larry Salsameda right there. Okay, we'll talk about the other two guys tonight who walked on water. Jesus and Peter. We'll start tonight in our maps. So... Does your Bible have maps? I suggest you get a Bible that does have some good maps in the back. They can be very helpful. Turn to the map that um, usually says in the time of Christ or the ministry of Jesus. Kind of look at the map there. You see Judea down in the south. You see Samaria in the center. You see the Galilee up around the Sea of Galilee. Notice to the uh, east side of the uh, Jordan River, you'll see the Decapolis. You go a little further south, you see Perea. Everybody see that? Everybody got a good map? You see those, those different words? Well, well, we'll start there tonight, and then we'll go right over into Matthew chapter 14. But before we do, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for us, and thank you for your mercies and your grace toward us. We pray tonight, Lord, that you'll bless us as we move through the scriptures once more. Lord, may uh, the scripture go through us as we go through the scriptures. Have your will done in our lives tonight, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you grew up in the 60s like me, you probably saw an episode or two of the show My Three Sons. Fred McMurray was the father. And his three sons were Robbie, Chip, and Ernie. And of course, Uncle Charlie also got into the action. The show ran for 12 years from 1960 to 1972. But another version of My Three Sons ran in ancient Israel during the first century. For when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was split among his three sons. Archelaus ruled over Judea. And Jerusalem. You can check that on your map, sort of in the south of Palestine. Archelaus proved so cruel and so ineffective that the Romans banished him and set up a procurator in his place or a governor, a Roman ruler. Philip was the second son, 
he was given the land north and east of the Sea of Galilee. He ruled over the Golan Heights. While Antipas ruled over Galilee and Perea. And this threw Antipas headfirst into conflict with both Jesus and John. Perea was east of the Jordan, parallel to Jerusalem. This was where John came baptizing. And the Galilee served as the headquarters for Jesus. Sadly, this Herod Antipas was a seedy, immoral, wicked fellow. His family life resembled a TV soap opera more than a sitcom. It was more like Days of Our Lives than My Three Sons. In fact, once on a trip to Rome, Antipas became infatuated with his niece and his sister-in-law, Herodias. Their adultery culminated with her divorce from Antipas's brother, Philip, and she married Antipas. Herod Antipas, this Jewish king, had flaunted God's law. A Jewish king had both committed incest, committed adultery, and committed divorce. And when the pastor stood at the wedding ceremony and asked the question, if anyone objects to this union, let him speak now or forever hold his peace, John the Baptist spoke up. He exposed the king's sin, and he angered the newlyweds. And that's where we pick it up in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch... Now. Just a little explanation. Herod the Great was a monarch. Antipas and Philip were each tetrarchs, which means quarter rulers. And Archelaus was called an ethnarch, or a racial or ethnic ruler. All these narcs sound like narcotics cops, don't they? But they were actually rulers, Roman rulers. Antipas and Philip were each given a quarter of Herod's kingdom... Their older brother, Archelaus, was given half of Herod the Great's kingdom before it was taken away by the Romans. And so, in order of rank, monarch was tops, tetrarch was lowest, and ethnarch was somewhere in between. Now, Herod Antipas, the tetrarch, built the city of Tiberias on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's there even today. Maybe we'll get it. No? No Tiberias tonight. Because Jesus and John ministered in the provinces of Galilee and in Perea, where Antipas was king, he was the ruler most often mentioned in the Gospels. Usually in the story of Jesus, when you run across a Herod, it's Herod Antipas. In fact, this is the man that in Luke 13, Jesus calls that fox. That's what he thought of him. Antipas was the Herod who would later try Jesus after his arrest and who sent him back to Pontius Pilate. This Antipas heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Notice a little paranoia in Herod. I mean, here's a guy who's suffering from a guilty conscience. You know, it's been said, a bad conscience has a good memory. God had used John the Baptist to speak to Herod. Yet Herod had silenced God's voice by killing John. And verses 1 and 2 show Herod's thoroughly pagan worldview. 
Remember, Jews didn't believe in reincarnation. But here Herod assumes that Jesus is John back from the dead seeking revenge. And it's Herod's paranoia that was grounded in superstition. Now, ironically, this Herod, he lived a life of luxury. He lived a life of ease. Yet, obviously, his guilty conscience trapped him in worry and in fear. That's what a guilty conscience will do. A conscience has been defined as that thing that hurts when everything else feels good. I like that. Herod's guilty conscience made him a miserable man. And in the next ten verses, Matthew provides a flashback. He reveals the cause of Herod's guilty conscience. He says, For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Now, John did it mince words. A Jewish leader had done an immoral deed, and John calls him on the carpet. In retaliation, this image-conscious king wants John swept under the rug. And so Herod arrests John and he incarcerates him in the prison of Macarius down by the Dead Sea. And although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. Now Herod was a politician. And the king was acutely aware of public opinion. And he knew that the multitude of Jews really loved John. But there was more to this than just politics. I think Herod had a great respect for John. Mark 6 verse 20 tells us this. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. John had purity and John had courage, the very traits that Herod lacked. I think John's only concern was pleasing God. Whereas for Herod, he had to consult the opinion polls before he brushed his teeth in the morning. And for a politician whose every decision is based on public opinion, John was to Herod a breath of fresh air. For a time, Herod listened to him. He had great respect for him. But things changed on his birthday. Verse 6. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, now, in Kathy's family, birthdays were always a very, very big deal. In our family, they were recognized, but it just wasn't the same for us. And it was one of those marital adjustments that I had to make to make a big deal out of birthdays. But in my family's defense, understand that the Bible isn't that big on birthdays either. In fact, there are only two birthdays mentioned in the Bible. Here and in Genesis 40, verse 20, the Pharaoh's birthday. And in both cases, somebody ended up decapitated. So forgive me if birthdays aren't that big a deal to me. <laughs> Evidently, Herod's wife, Herodias, had arranged for Herod a very special birthday present. We're told the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Her name was Salome. Long legs, tiny waist, hourglass figure. She was young and sexy and beautiful. And she had taken some belly dancing lessons. For she danced before King Herod. 
Understand, this was a stag party. The wine had been flowing for hours. The crowd started shouting for a little male entertainment. Usually, this kind of seductive dance was performed by a prostitute or, for, from, or by a professional dancer. Not often did a lady of standing, did a member of the royal court stoop to perform such a degrading deed, dance before these drunken men. But Herod was so impressed with Salome's dance, verse 7, therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Mark tells us that Herod qualified his offer. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Wow. So she, having been prompted by her mother, what kind of a mother prompts her daughter to do this, said, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Herodias had manipulated this whole event. She had been scorned. John had dared to say that she was wrong, that she was immoral, that she had sinned, and now she was getting her retaliation and revenge. You know, it's sad when a mom teaches her own daughter the art of seduction and manipulation. This is not the way that a young woman should try to get ahead. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. Now understand, you read this and you think, well, Herod didn't have an out. You know, if he wanted to save face, he had to go through. He had to go ahead and kill John the Baptist, but he did have an out. Because remember, he had offered a qualifier. He had limited his offer to up to half his kingdom. What he could have done... Had he been thinking soberly, he could have told Salome that he valued John the Baptist more than half his kingdom. That would have ended the deal. Instead, all Herod could think about was his pride and how he might be perceived. And the opinions of his guests were more valuable to him than the life of the man of God. So he sent and he had John beheaded in prison. How ironic. John lost his head. So Herod could save face. And sadly, Herod's decision gets repeated every single day. At work, at school, in the halls of Congress. Conscious and truth are shoved aside simply to please people. To enhance someone's power among their peers. People are still trying to get ahead. It's interesting, in 39 AD, God served justice. Herod and Herodias were accused of treason against Rome. They were stripped of their wealth and power, and they were banished to Spain. In the end, the man who shunned God to get ahead ended up losing all. Verse 11 tells us, And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Lust and power and ego always come at a high price. Then his disciples came, and took away the body and buried it. You know, if Herod had buried his pride, the disciples wouldn't have had to bury John. And notice, notice what John's disciples do with their pain and with their confusion. What we should be do when, do when we're hurt and when we're reeling from that hurt. Notice what they do. And they went and told Jesus. Do you tell Jesus about your hurts and about your disappointments and about your pain? You should, for he cares.
Now when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. Luke chapter 9 verse 10 says that they sailed northeast toward the fishing village of Bethsaida. And on a clear day, you can see all the way across the Sea of Galilee. Folks could have easily seen the disciples' boat. They were able to follow it on foot. They were following as it sailed across the water. They could kind of track it on foot as they walked along the shoreline. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. And he was moved with compassion and healed their sick. And as we said this morning, this word translated compassion is from the Greek word viscera or visceral. It speaks of deep emotions. The old King James uses the phrase bowels of compassion. Jesus felt for the multitudes in his gut. Now when it was evening, the sun was setting, his disciples came to him saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. There's not a Waffle House or a McDonald's for miles. Send the hungry crowd away before it's too late. John 6 tells us that this event took place near the Passover. That means that it was in the springtime. And the sun sets in Israel around 6 o'clock in the evening in the springtime. So it must have been around 4, 430 when they made this statement. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And of course... As we learned, they had no rations, certainly not enough to feed 5,000 families. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And again, the Gospel of John fills in some of the details. One little boy had packed a lunch, some fish and chips, five hand-sized loaves of bread, two sardine-sized fish. Andrew was the one who found the boy and brought his brown bag to Jesus. And Jesus said, bring them here to me. And then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. And a miracle of multiplication took place. Jesus somehow altered the molecular structure of the bread and the fish so that each time a piece was broken off, it added to the volume. The little boy's brown bag refused to empty. And notice what Jesus did with the bread and the fish, because it is exactly what Jesus wants to do with your life and with my life. Here is the Master's fourfold work in our lives. First, He took the bread. And Jesus takes us, doesn't he? He takes us out of the world. He forgives us of our sin. He makes us his own. Second, Jesus blessed the bread. And isn't that what he does to us? He takes us out of the world. Then he blesses us with new life, with all spiritual riches in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He pours on us God's favor and favors. Then finally, he gives us He he gave the bread to his disciples to give to the multitudes. And Jesus gives us away. He gives us to the people around us to serve them and to serve him and to minister the truth of the gospel and the love of Jesus to the people around us. All that we like, we want, we relish, we find right here 
in this verse. He takes us out of the world. He blesses us. Then he uses us. Isn't that what you want for your life? But whoa, wait one minute. Because we left something out, didn't we? Notice, between the blessing and the giving, he breaks the bread. Notice, he breaks the bread before he passes it out and gives it away. And this is also what he does to us. He takes us out of the world. He blesses us with his spiritual blessings. He uses us for his kingdom. But between the blessing and the using, he breaks us. He humbles us. And he breaks us of our pride and our self-sufficiency. And he reminds us what we would be like without him. Spiritually speaking, we are puny and powerless. We're nothing but a brown bag lunch. And guys, to be given away in service for Jesus, you first have to be broken. If you're not, you won't be digestible to the people you're trying to serve. People will choke on your haughtiness. You'll produce a case of spiritual indigestion in the people you're trying to minister to unless you're first broken. Before we're broken, we're hard and we're insensitive and we're self-sufficient and we're full of ourselves. And when a proud person tries to serve God, people will choke on our arrogance. We can't be swallowed. They just can't swallow us. That's why we have to be broken. And brokenness is a process. But God is faithful to fulfill that process. Guys, there are no shortcuts. If we want to be used by God, we first have to be broken. Verse 20. So they all ate and were filled and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Think about that. They had big families in those days. 5,000 families could have been 20,000 miles. You can't get 20,000 people in Brookwood Stadium over there. That's a lot of people. Notice, too, the 12 baskets of leftovers. I love that. The 12 take-home boxes could have been for the 12 tribes of Israel. I think more probably Jesus had one basket of leftovers for each of the 12 apostles to teach them a lesson that he can turn our little into a lot. He can turn our meagerness into much if we'll bring it to Jesus. Verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Notice Jesus made his disciples set sail. The word implies a strong urging. Evidently, the thrill of the multiplication had captivated them. They didn't want to leave the moment. But here he urges them to set sail. It's time to go. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. And this was Jesus' habit, to retreat from time to time, to pray, to seek God. This would be a good habit for us as well. When life gets busy, it's best to get away, to come apart. You know, if you don't come apart and spend time with Jesus, you'll, you'll come apart. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. A northeasterly had sweeped down from the Golan Heights, had hit the warm air above the lake, and a sudden storm had rocked the boat in the churning waters. 
Now the disciples had launched from the northeastern tip of the lake, Bethsaida. And they were sailing toward Gennesaret, which was south of Capernaum, still on the north side of the lake, but now over on the western shore. So here was the plan. They were sailing from the northeastern tip of the lake to its northwestern shore. Very, very short voyage. Should have taken just a few hours. But the storm pushed the boat all the way out into the center of the lake. And understand, the disciples are in trouble. Not because they were disobedient to Jesus. As a matter of fact, if they'd been disobedient, they probably would have stayed on the shore in a safe, dry house with chicken noodle soup in front of them. Probably would have been safe and secure if they had disobeyed the Lord. But instead, they had obeyed the Lord and it got them into trouble. Do you know that sometimes obeying Jesus gets you into trouble? It's true. When you choose to obey Jesus, you will go against the flow of this world. And sometimes it creates conflict and difficulty. They encounter this storm and all its difficulty because they obeyed the Lord. You know, it's interesting, throughout its history, the church has compared itself to this little boat of disciples. The word nave is an old English word which referred to the main part of the church building, the nave or the sanctuary. But it is a Latin word that actually means ship. In other words, the church was always compared to this little ship. Obedience to God sends us in a direction that's contrary to the prevailing moods and the values of the world. Inevitably, followers of Jesus will encounter rough seas. Now, these were experienced, uh, experienced sailors. These men had made a living on the sea, but they were in real trouble. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. The fourth watch was around 3 a.m., that means they had been floundering on the water now for about eight hours. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost! And they cried out for fear. I'm certain they weren't expecting to see anyone walk out on the water toward them. It shocked the disciples. They really didn't know what to think. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I do not be afraid. Hey, when you're in trouble, Jesus always comes to us. But, in oft, but often in ways that we don't expect. He comes, but He comes in ways we don't expect. You know, we think one moment that the Lord is nowhere. Then suddenly, He's now here. Same letters, just a different perspective, aren't they? Here's good news. Sudden storms are as much a part of the Christian life as supernatural surprises. That's why we need to be on the lookout for both. When a storm arises, don't panic. Look for Jesus walking on the water. He'll come bringing you good cheer. And notice Jesus calms the storm in the boat before he calms the storm on the sea. This is always his, his uh, priority. He wants to calm both. But we, if we understand the purpose of the storm, we'll realize that Jesus wants to bring peace to our hearts even before he brings peace to our lives. Notice in verse 28, Peter asks to do some supernatural surfing. 
And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, what a bold request this is. Peter isn't afraid. The rest of the disciples, they're in shock over just seeing Jesus walking on the water. But Peter wants to join him. Isn't it interesting for Peter, following Jesus wasn't this dutiful, obligatory life that he had enrolled in. No, I believe for Peter, following Jesus was an opportunity for new adventure. That's how he looked at it. That what Jesus did, if I'm going to follow him, I can do it too. That was Peter's attitude. And so Jesus said, come. What do you do now? Well, he got out of the boat. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Notice this. He's doing great. He's doing fine. He's staying dry. He's staying above the waves until, but when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. Notice Peter was doing great as long as his focus was on Jesus. But the moment he got his eyes off Jesus, he had the buoyancy of a rock. Flotation depends on focus. Remember that in your life when you're going through troubled waters. You know, the lesson here is so clear. If we want to live a supernatural life, if we want to stay happy even when life gets rough, keep your eyes on Jesus. Deal with, you deal with the unpleasant circumstances responsibly, you deal with them effectively, but at the moment you're dealing with them, you still keep your eyes on Jesus. It's by keeping our eyes on Jesus that we stay above it all. That we stay above what might drag us down and get us wet and cause us fear. Keep your eyes on Jesus and stay above the circumstances of life. You know, often Peter gets a black eye for this episode. But I happen to admire him. He's the only disciple who got out of the boat. You know, most Christians sit back and enjoy the safety of the boat without ever risking anything for Jesus. They're afraid to get wet. Hey, you'll never walk on water if you don't get out of the boat. And when Peter sinks, he knows what to do. Give him credit. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus was right there to rescue him. As soon as he cried out. You know, in extra-biblical writings, Peter is often referred to by a nickname. He's called the giant. Pete evidently was a big man, which meant that Jesus also must have been a very strong man. Because he grabbed Peter by one hand and just sort of curled him right back into the boat. Jesus was a carpenter. Before the days of electric drills and power saws, I mean, Jesus was a pretty buff, muscular guy himself. He pulls Jesus, Peter back into the boat. Remember, Jesus always rescues faith-challenged swimmers. There's, there's some fun we had on the Sea of Galilee. Do, do you recognize who that is? That's Charles. Charles tried to walk on water out on the Sea of Galilee. and I had to pull him back in the boat. Charles, I've been waiting since November to show that slide. You know that. I do. 
Jesus always rescues faith-challenged swimmers. But for me, i got to tell you, for me, I'd rather surf than sink every now and then than to play it safe and spend my whole life in the boat. You give me a choice, I'd rather surf. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. Now notice this story. Let's sum it up. Jesus sends his disciples into the storm. He prays for them during the storm from top of the mountain. He joins them in the midst of the storm. Finally, he saves them from the storm. In between, a lot of adventure takes place. Isn't this what the Christian life is all about? He sends us out into the storms of life. He prays for us. He intercedes for us in heaven. He even joins us through the Holy Spirit as we encounter the storm. And then he saves us from the storm. And in between, it's a lot of fun and great adventure. Notice Jesus docks the boat now in Gennesaret. One of my favorite places to stay in the Galilee is the hotel there at Gennesar or Gennesaret. It's where the Jesus boat, you heard me talk about that. The Jesus boat is on display there as well. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region. And that surrounding region now is the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, which was the most populated part of the region. And they brought to him all who were sick and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Now if you'll go back and read Numbers 15 verse 38, we're told there that every Jewish male wore tassels on the borders of their garment. The telet is what they call it. Or Danielle can correct my pronunciation. How do you say it, Danielle? Okay, there you go. Go. I won't even try it. But it's a, a tassel that they wear on the borders of their garment, and a blue thread is woven into the tassel. The blue stands for heaven. And so when folks came and touched Jesus' tassels, in their minds, they were touching the power of heaven, and indeed they were. Heaven had come to earth in healing power. I think it's true today. If you want to touch heaven, get to know Jesus. Chapter 15 begins. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do, you, do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Now, now understand, these were not serious seekers. They were theological hit men. And they were coming to ensnare Jesus, to find fault in his teaching so that they could label him a blasphemer. And here was their specific beef. For your disciples do not wash their hands when they eat bread. The Jewish rabbis taught that in addition to the law of Moses, God had given further instructions to Moses that weren't written down but were passed on orally. They believed that these traditions were the key to correctly interpreting the law. By the end of the second century AD, this oral tradition had been recorded and codified in a book called the Mishnah. To some rabbis living at the time of Jesus, the law was important, but the oral law or the Mishnah was even more important than the law of Moses. And in the Mishnah, there were 35 pages devoted to this subject of the proper washing of one's hands. 
You see, the Jews believed that external washing was necessary for spiritual purity. Some rabbis taught that a demon by the name of Shibna would come and sit on a man's hands while he was asleep. And if the next day he ate without washing, the demon could enter the man through his food and thus take control of his life. The rabbis had rules governing how and when to wash. The stories told of one rabbi who almost died of thirst. He was in a Roman prison. And in the prison, he spent all of his water rations ritualistically washing his hands so that he had nothing to drink. And he almost died. He was so preoccupied with his washings. It's interesting, at Jerusalem's Wailing Wall today, there's a wash basin and a spigot right there by the entrance. And the Jewish rabbis continue to encourage people to wash before they enter into the holy areas. For Jews at the time of Jesus, the ceremonial washing was their way to heaven. It was their ticket to heaven. And the Jewish rabbis in Jerusalem were upset over reports that Jesus wasn't following their traditions. Verse 3. Now Jesus answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? You see, their traditions were supposed to be the key to keeping the law. In fact, one rabbi had referred to the old, old oral traditions or the Mishnah as the fence around the law. But Jesus saw it not as a fence, but as a loophole to avoid the law's true intention. He gives an example. He says, For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. Kids, pay attention to that. These are strong exhortations. They're straight from the law of God. But you say, Jesus says to the Jews, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Now, the law's intention was to honor, was for children to honor their parents. But Jesus brings up the Jewish law of Corban. This was a familiar Jewish tradition. Corban means gift of God. And here's how this tradition worked. If a child knew, a grown child knew, that his parents were in trouble and that they were coming to him for financial assistance, then he could pronounce all of his household goods and belongings as Corban or as given to the temple. They remained in his possession. He couldn't sell them. He couldn't give them away for technically they belonged to the temple. But it kept him from having to help his poor parents. It was a scam to keep a family from doing their duty and caring for their parents. They could turn down their parents and they could feel like they were pleasing God at the same time. And this was just one example of how the traditions were providing loopholes around the real intent of the law. Rather than a fence around the law, the traditions had become a farce in the face of the law. And Jesus tells them, verse 7, Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, and he quotes Isaiah 29, verse 13, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And here is a danger that should concern Christians of every generation. For often tradition gets mistaken for truth. The doctrines of men get passed off as commandments of God. Hey, tradition might not be bad. It might serve us and help us for a season. But a tradition should never be elevated to the status of Scripture. Traditions eventually run their course. They outlast their usefulness. When a tradition becomes a hindrance to faith, it needs to get kicked out on its ear. What's important are the commandments of God, not the traditions of men. And we should never mistake the two. Verse 10 tells us, When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Now one commentator calls verse 11, the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. At least it was in the eyes of the Jews. For dietary laws and outward washings were central to the religion of Judaism. And here Jesus is nullifying the importance of what was all important to the Jews. Jesus is saying that as far as God is concerned, at the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. That's what the purity that God desires doesn't originate on your plate or on your hands, but in your heart. Righteousness isn't an appetizer, it's an attitude. True purity is inward, not outward. It works from the inside out, not from the outside in. Well, then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? <laughs> as if Jesus didn't know. In other words, Jesus, do you realize you weren't being very politically correct back there? You have offended those Pharisees. You know, every pastor faces this dilemma. Do you know you offended someone today? And I hope you know it's never my desire to be deliberately defensive to anyone. I'm not on the attack with the truth. I love people. I'm not trying to attack them. But there are beliefs and there are behaviors that, quite frankly, offend God. And if I don't speak out against them, I will offend Him. And I will say this, as much as I love you, I would much rather offend you than I would offend God. Jesus answers them in verse 13. He states His opinion of the Pharisees. Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted, will be uprooted. Let them alone. In other words, human teachings, human traditions, they won't stand. They'll eventually get uprooted. Only the commandments of God are eternal. They alone will pass the test of time. The Pharisees are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch. Follow a man-made system, even a path of religion. Follow the traditions of men and you're headed for a wipeout. Only God's ways and God's words will last forever. It's a grid we should always be sifting our, our things through, our thoughts through. Is this a tradition or is this real truth? 
Is this an invention of man? Or is this truly a passage of Scripture, the words of God? What's of tradition may be helpful, but it's certainly not essential. What's of God will last forever. He calls these Pharisees blind leaders of the blind. It reminds me of the two airline pilots who walked into the concourse and they both had black glasses on and one had a CNI dog and the other had a cane. He was tapping along, you know. And They came down the runway and they walked into the cockpit wearing these glasses and with the CNI dog and all. And Of course, the passengers, you know, they sensed, oh, this must be a joke. And so they all were giggling and laughing and all. And, but as the plane started down the runway, the passengers got a little nervous because the plane didn't look like it was taking off. And it was flying. It was heading straight for the, the river that was at the end of the runway. Just before the plane plowed into the lake, panic screams filled the cabin. At the moment of the screams, the plane lifted off, took off into the sky. Well, the passengers, again, they sort of chuckled to themselves. How could we have worried? And they, they once again settled into their magazines and started to relax. But in the cockpit, one of the blind pilots, he said to the other, he says, you know, one day they'll scream too late and we're all going to die. How's that for the blind leading the blind? That's what was going on with the Pharisees. Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. Now obviously Peter didn't understand what Jesus was saying. This wasn't a parable at all. It was direct truth. So Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? I mean this whole notion that there was a difference between man-made religion and divine truth is so radical that Jesus has to repeat it now a second time to Peter. Verse 17. Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? I mean, foods are consumables. They offer no spiritual, no lasting sustenance. They supply a temporary benefit to your body. And then they're expelled. There's no permanent, eternal benefit to foods. But those things which proceed out of the mouth, come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Godly purity is inward and spiritual. It transforms my heart and then works its way out into my life. False righteousness, self-righteousness is outward and physical. It touches, it might even train my hands, but it never tames my heart. True purity originates not in what I eat, but it begins with the beat of my heart and in the seat of my soul. Even after Jesus repeats this principle to Peter, he still doesn't understand. In fact, he won't understand until years later on a rooftop in Joppa, when he receives a special vision from God. Verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. This, of course, is Gentile land. These cities were north of the Israeli border. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that. She was a Gentile. She came from that region and she cried out to him saying, 
Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. And notice these are all Jewish terms that she uses. God had promised David a son who would be the Savior, who would be the King, the Messiah. And even though this woman was a Gentile, notice she is approaching Jesus as a Jew. This is important to understanding the story. And she comes with a need. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But Jesus answered her not a word. (laughs) Now, at first glance, it seems that Jesus is rude. At least he's uncompassionate. She pours out her heart, and Jesus sits there in silence. Let me ask, have you ever had a similar experience with Jesus? Have you ever been deeply grieved and immensely troubled? And you got on your knees and you prayed passionately and yet heaven was stone silent? Hey, we've all had similar experiences to this Gentile woman where we poured out our heart and it seemed that Jesus was silent. He didn't answer. You know what's going on here in this story is going on in some of your lives here tonight. I want you to understand first that Jesus had an uncanny ability to sense the potential of faith in people. And he had the ability to draw faith out of people. It was C.H. Spurgeon who put it, Our Lord had a very quick eye for spying faith. Though he remained silent, he does see in this woman the seeds of great faith. And in the next few verses, he's going to try to draw her faith out and strengthen her faith. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after She's a bother. She's a pest. She's annoying us, Jesus. Send her away. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, Jesus finally speaks to the woman. But it doesn't offer her very very much encouragement. As Jesus had said earlier, his time was short and his priority was the Jews, not the Gentiles. But then she came and she worshipped him saying, Lord, help me. Now, if I had been this woman, Jesus is silent to me at first and then he tells me that I'm not his priority second, I probably would have gotten discouraged and I probably would have sulked away. But that was not this woman. She had everything going against her. She was a woman. She was a Gentile. She was an annoyance. All things that the disciples frowned on. But notice, she refused to give up. And guys, this is the essence of real faith. Persistence and endurance. You don't just ask one time and then quit. Then, then, you know, shelve it. In Luke 11, Jesus told the parable about a man who was visited one night by a friend, but he had no food to feed his friend. And so he went to his neighbor's house, and he started beating on the door. His neighbor told him, said, get lost, man. I'm asleep. I'm in the bed. I'm with my family. You know, I don't want to be bugged by you. But he says, no, I need bread. And he kept pounding and beating on the door until the man finally got up out of bed, and he went and he got the man some bread. And Jesus was teaching in this parable persistence through prayer you know hey if your neighbor will get up because of your persistence how much more do you think God will respond because of your assistance God God's not inconvenienced by you God loves you God wants to bless you 
But, but here was the deal with this man. He didn't just knock once. And he said, well, I'm too proud to sit here and, you know, give up my dignity and sit here and knock on this door and create a scene. No, the man was shame. You know, he was shameless, you know. I mean, he just kept knocking and knocking and knocking. He, he swallowed his pride. He was desperate. And his desperation overtook his pride. That's what Jesus is saying faith really is. Faith is when your desperation over, overwhelms your pride. And, and you've got no pride. You're just coming to Jesus in hope and in trust and in dependence. And seeking his, his uh, blessing. In that same passage, Jesus said, For everyone who asks, or literally keeps on asking, receives. And he who keeps on seeking, finds. And to him who keeps on knocking, it will be opened. True faith is desperate dependence. When a man's desperation eclipses his dignity, that's when God pick, you know, pipes up and begins to move. Now, at first Jesus was silent. Then he spoke to her. Now he speaks to her. He spoke about her. Now he actually speaks to her. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now notice Jesus' tone is softening at least. He's referring to Gentiles as dogs, but not the back alley mongrels that were common in the cities, but as little dogs, the little puppies, the kind of animals that you kept around the house, the pets. And yet you still would never feed your pets from bread out of the children's mouths. The puppies were fed with scraps from the table. The kids always ate first before the puppies. This woman picks up on Jesus' train of thought. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Yes, Lord, I get it. The Jews come first. But the Gentiles still get the crumbs that slip through the cracks. And all this lady was asking for in her mind was a crumb. For to an infinite, almighty, awesome God, who she believed Jesus to be, her little sister to be, her little girl's deliverance would be a... Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Now, I love this story. I really do. It's one of my favorite stories. At first, this woman comes to Jesus as if she was a Jew. She was pretending to be something she was not. Her faith was a borrowed faith. But Jesus was silent in light of that faith. Then Jesus plays coy and hard to get. He's drawing out from her a more real faith, a desperate faith, a genuine faith. He's determining the determination of her faith. Finally, he embraces, embraces her faith wholeheartedly. He coaxes out of her a real, genuine, authentic faith. When she admitted that she wasn't a child at the table, when she admitted she had no rights or claims of inheritance, when she realized she was just a puppy under the table, just a beggar, just wanting a few scraps, that's when Jesus acknowledged her great faith. And answered her prayer. Hey, the next time that Jesus is silent to your prayers. Or the next time it seems like he's playing coy and hard to get. It could just be that Jesus is trying to draw out from you a deeper faith. 
a more genuine faith, a more authentic faith. He wants you to stop being somebody that you're not. He wants you to stop borrowing faith from other people and develop your own faith. He wants genuine faith in us all. In us all. Wonderful story. Verse 20. Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, skirted Jesus deployed. Verse 